Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. At last year's Palliative Care and Oncology Symposium in Boston, a team of Hawaii healthcare professionals shared data showing advanced care patients in a supportive care pilot program were significantly less likely to be admitted to a hospital or intensive care unit as compared with any other state in the country. What's happening differently and how might this affect the care of your loved ones? Well, today we have a panel of experts in the studio. Dr. Rita Bell Fernandez is a medical director at Bristol Hospice, and she's here to talk about supportive care and concurrent care. Dr. Daniel Fishberg is the medical director for the Pain and Palliative Care Department at Queen's Medical Center in Honolulu. And nurse practitioner Amy Kama is here representing Islands Hospice and is going to share the general idea of hospice, who benefits, and are we utilizing these services as often and as much as we should. If you or a loved one has ever experienced taking care of someone who's in hospice or having someone you know who has been enrolled in the program, this is a discussion where we would like to hear from you as well. You can always join our conversation. Tell us how things went. Did you feel as though hospice or any supportive or palliative care was initiated early enough? And what message would you give to the doctors of your loved one so that they could help handle and you handle this situation even better? We would love to hear from you at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 1-877-941-3689. Welcome, everyone, to The Body Show. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks. Now, the first thing I'd like to do is, Amy, I want to talk with you. You're here. You're a nurse practitioner. You work with Islands Hospice. Tell me, what is hospice? And who is that meant to be provided for? Just the general overall idea. Because I think a lot of times people hear that word and they get scared. And they don't necessarily understand what it means or why they'd want to consider it. So what's hospice? How would you define that? Hospice care is a holistic uh, team-provided service for patients. It's in, it's covered by their insurance. Um Essentially, it's provided to individuals with advanced life-limiting illnesses, specifically those individuals who have what we call a terminal prognosis, a life expectancy of six months or less. So these patients are eligible for hospice. It includes an interdisciplinary team of healthcare professionals, including a medical director trained in palliative care services to help control symptom management, nurses that visit the home, spiritual care providers, social workers, volunteers, and certified nurse assistants, all that provide team services to each patient. So this would be a program that someone with a diagnosis or an expectation that they may not be here in six months might be able to take advantage of. What kind of diagnoses would be an example? One example would be cancer. If someone has advanced cancer that has spread from one part of the body to another, um, heart disease, if someone has advanced heart failure, uh, individuals with lung disease, COPD, um, it, even uh, dementia, patients with advanced cognitive impairment, Alzheimer's disease, dementia, patients with stroke, basically a wide, the whole gamut of very advanced disease processes. And there is specific criteria that insurance uh, companies require us to follow to have a good idea that each patient would have that terminal six-month prognosis. Sure. And as a physician, I often have to fill out these Mm -hmm. papers and, you know, what do I know about their illness? What is the expectation? Now, in in your experience, 
do doctors or patients wait too late to get enrolled in hospice? Is it something that we don't address soon enough? Typically, hospice is, it can be a frightening word. Um, end of life, appro- approaching the end of life is, is a frightening time for people, for patients and family members. And oftentimes, uh, we individuals still want to pursue aggressive medical treatment, um, more not necessarily curative measures, but life-prolonging measures. And that is can be a preventive uh, reason for people going on to hospice. Um, there are also many myths about hospice. That, Let's do some myth yeah. busting. <laughs> Let's do myth busting right now. So mm-hmm. tell me, uh, well, I got an idea. I'll tell you a myth and mm-hmm. you tell me true or false sure. and then you'll add some extras because I'm sure you know more. Mm-hmm. Okay, myth number one, you can get kicked out of hospice if you live too long. False, kicked out. Um, basically with... Uh, that was probably a hard term. You know, no one's really <laughs> kicked getting kicked. Out. I mean, you know, that's probably that's probably a bad term. But if you mm-hmm. happen to live longer but you mm-hmm. still qualify yes. for your diagnosis, mm-hmm. you can still receive services. Definitely. So okay. um, as long as someone continues to have that six-month or less prognosis, um, individuals often, when they initiate hospice services, they may live beyond the six-month period of time or, or less. We never know exactly how long someone has. But for individuals that are still uh, meeting criteria for hospice, uh, they can stay on service as long as they meet their el- eligibility. There are some patients that actually do improve and get yeah, better they get on hospice. Better. Right. Yeah, and then their prognosis is longer than six months, so they have a longer life expen- expectancy. And those patients, we call it graduation. They've improved to the point. That's a much better term. <laughs> yeah. I got to tell you. I give you props for that, Amy. Mm-hmm. That's a better term. <laughs> so you graduate. And I've actually mm-hmm. had a couple of patients who have had that happen. They've actually gotten better yes. and or their heart failure has improved mm-hmm. and for whatever reason they are they're living better than they were and so they're they're graduated from hospice and they can always re-enroll yes. should the situation change. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's do another myth. Mm-hmm. Once you enroll, you can never see your regular doctor again. False. Okay. Tell so, me why. So with hospice, you can elect uh, one attending physician. So it can be any of the physicians that you have seen, um, you can elect them to be your primary physician that you can continue to see while you are on hospice services. Um, the alternative is you can elect for a hospice medical director to be or an, even a hospice nurse practitioner to be your new provider. So you have flexibility. Um, but with hospice, typically, it's just one phys- it is just one physician that you choose. And it can be someone you have a long-standing relationship and history with. You can continue to see that physician. Sure. And you can have a backup plan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so if number one isn't available, mm-hmm. then you have a number two. Yes. I've, I've been the number one for several of my own patients. I've also stepped into the number two role if I'm about to leave the country or go on a trip or something like that, just to make sure there's some continuity. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, let's take another myth. Once you're on hospice, you can never get admitted to the hospital again. True or false? It's True, false, in between there. It is both. (laughs) Just to throw you a curveball, I've just curved it. All right. So with with hospice services, the idea is that individuals are looking for comfort care. They solely want symptom management. They're no longer pursuing any life-prolonging measures. This does not mean that we stop all of the medications that a patient's on. They can continue on Uh, medications that are important uh, for maintaining their comfort and their health. Um, With hospice, the idea is that hospice provides a 24-7 
care for a patient. So if there are any symptoms that can't be managed, you can call your hospice and a nurse can come to visit 24-7 on the weekends, at night. Um, They can come to the home and help to manage the symptoms. So your hospice becomes your 911 when you're on that service. If there is any symptom that we cannot manage in the home and we cannot keep a patient comfortable, at that point we can utilize the ER or the hospital. So it is... Yes, it's both. It's it true is both. and false. So okay. if I mean, most right. times our patients are in the home and we manage, we, we're we very effective symptom managers. So we manage people and keep them comfortable at home. Um, if there needs to be the hospital utilized, we can access that. But our patients no longer access the hospital for routine care anymore. They okay. use us as hospice, as the emergency And you guys actually can show up in the home, which brings me to the last myth I can think of about hospice. And that one would be that hospice is somewhere else that you go. It's not staying in your own home. Mm -hmm. True or false? False. All right. False to that one. Oftentimes, people think of hospice as a place. Uh, hospice is a service that can be provided wherever you feel more, most comfortable or wherever you can be provided the most safe care. Um, for most people, hospice is actually provided in their own homes. Uh, research shows that pe- most people want to, if they have a choice in where they would pass away, they'd want to be in a familiar setting in their own home setting. So hospice, the majority of hospice services are provided in the home. It can also be provided in a nursing facility, in a hospice home, and, and on occasions in the hospital as well. All right. Are there any other myths that we didn't bust yet? Mm-hmm. There are many, many myths, but we can hit them later on. We can do a whole hour. Okay. So, all right. Well, that's the general broad overview of some of the hospice services. So thanks for clarifying that for us and helping us to myth bust. Now we're going to move to our next friend in the hot seat, Dr. Daniel Fishberg. He is the medical director of the Pain and Palliative Care Department at Queens Medical Center in Honolulu. And he also serves as the professor and chief of the Division of Palliative Medicine in the Department of Geriatric Medicine at the John A. Burns School of Medicine at the University of Hawaii. So he is here to join us today and palliative care. So we just heard a little bit about hospice. And sometimes people, there's a, there's like an alphabet soup of terms that go around. So we've tasked you with explaining the concept of palliative care and pain in palliative care. So tell me what that is, and maybe a little contrast to hospice so we can sort of have people put this in the right framework for themselves. Okay. So the first myth is it doesn't have anything to do with your palate. <laughs> okay, um, it's not your mouth. That's a myth. We myth-busted already. Okay, Great. but palliative care is a new specialty of medicine. It's, it's a specialized medical care for people living with serious illness. The focus is to prevent and relieve pain, symptoms, and stress related to the illness. And the, the goal is the best possible quality of life for the patient and the family. It's um, typically provided by a, a team. And I have a, a team that I work with in the hospital, doctors, nurses, advanced practice nurses, social workers, and other specialists who work with a patient's medical team uh, to, to achieve those goals of best possible quality of life. It's appropriate any age, any stage. Palliative care can be the focus of care, like in hospice, or it can be combined with curative treatments. So the big difference would be if you have cancer and you're treating it, 
and you still are experiencing pain or having other sorts of concerns, you can get the team approach from palliative care while you continue to treat the cancer. Right. If it's been determined that your cancer treatment has become futile and or it's, it's spread and there's nothing else that you can do, then you might move into a hospice situation. But palliative care allows you to treat the actual diagnosis while you're also receiving exactly. these other services. Exactly. And, and evidence is coming to, to light that actually it, it, it's much better when you apply these palliative treatments early on. And, and that's some of what we're seeing with some of the programs that we're going to talk about today is that uh, being a little more aggressive with, with the uh, pain and symptom management can actually help people get through the disease-directed treatments a lot better. So who would be the best served by palliative care? It's, you know, it's, it almost sounds like anybody who has a serious uh, illness. It, 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 it's really true. It's not based on a prognosis or even a diagnosis as long as it's you know serious. But some of our patients might be the, a very healthy person who was a victim of trauma um, uh, or any of the advanced illnesses that, that might, if they progress, uh, be appropriate for hospice, whether that's advanced heart disease, lung disease, uh, liver disease, a cancer, uh, dementias. So... With palliative care, how would someone access this? Is this something where they would have to be seen by this team in the hospital? Do people go into an office setting in a clinic and get seen? How do people come to you? Yeah, so I think the, the, where the country has really made the most progress is in hospital-based palliative care. There's a big focus on that. And most hospitals of, of uh, you know over 300 beds or so in the country do have a hospital-based palliative care service. And I'd say, you know, quite a few of the hospitals here in Hawaii have, have palliative care services. Um, a little more where it's a challenge is in the community. Uh, the models are still being developed. Um, right now, you know, Queens, uh, our palliative care service provides care in, in the Queens Cancer Center. Um, and elsewhere in the community, it, it's a little more limited. That's why some of these novel programs we'll be talking about have been able to sort of step up and actually provide palliative care in those community settings. So when we talk about palliative care, it would be at this point initiated in a hospital. Somebody might be receiving treatment for their cancer or for some other medical condition, have something serious enough, have some symptoms and needs. And what would be the role of some of these team members? I almost think I can perceive what it would be in hospice because social workers can help with a variety of different areas and nurse practitioners and coming to the home. But if palliative care right now is predominantly in the hospital, what are some of the services that a palliative care team can offer for an individual. So, you know, very often in the hospitalized setting, there's a lot of symptom. So symptom management, nausea, pain, pain discomfort. Shortness of okay. breath. Um, there can be emotional needs, whether people are um, uh, depressed or anxious, uh, and, and that obviously can contribute to someone's overall well-being. can also contribute to their pain, so attending to that. Um, a lot of practical needs, just... Um, uh, helping people access services that they may not be aware of in the community to support them, to support the family. You know, there's just tremendous caregiver burden, uh, you know, for for a family that's going through a serious illness. Um, and it seems almost like sometimes each family is trying to reinvent the wheel and, and learning things on their own. Um, and a good source of information can be a palliative care service, c can be other sources too, but, but there are these resources available to help sustain the family um, as caregivers. And really to tap into that network and find out what's available, the best way to do is if, if you or a loved one are in the hospital and you're having some of these concerns, 
see if they do have a palliative care department that can actually provide consultation. And then you find out about all the different services. Right. So in that situation, how do you perceive palliative care as potentially being office-based? Do you ever see that that would be a role? Yeah. No, it absolutely is. And, and, and I, I didn't mean to leave the impression that that's the only source of referrals. We do see outpatients as well. And many of the patients we meet only in the outpatient setting. And, you know, if we're doing our job well, they never get sick enough to be in the hospital. Um, and, and that's, you know. So that, consults can be in the hospital, can be in the clinic. Right. It, but that model is much, you know, more infrequent across the country and in Hawaii. So th- it's it's something that a lot of people are trying to build, a model that works, that's sustainable. It's a very time-intensive kind of work, as you can imagine. It's team-based. It's very holistic, just as Amy was describing. Uh, hospice care, it's, it's really looking at the patient and the family sort of in their entirety, their their emotional needs, their, phys- their practical needs, their spiritual needs, uh, their informational needs about what's going on, what might they expect or hope for for the future. Um, so so it, it's, it takes a lot of time, and uh, different models are still being developed. Um, and, and I think one of the things we want to talk about today is the supportive care model or the concurrent care model, which has been a really successful model here in Hawaii. Well, and let's talk about that. So we have we have Dr. Rita Bell Fernandez. You're the medical director at Bristol's Hospice, and you lead the Bristol's Hospice Supportive Care Program. So we've heard about hospice. We've heard about palliative care. Now contrast and tell me, what is supportive care? Supportive care is specialized medical care to help patients and families manage the symptoms and stresses of serious or life-threatening illnesses. It is provided in addition to regular medical care. Under the leadership of Dr. Ray Seitz and Robert Eubanks at HMSA, they establish contracts with different hospices, or rather all the hospices on all the islands. Everyone is participating in this program. So the supportive care teams through the hospices, they include doctors, nurses, social workers, chaplains, and aides, who are specialized in caring for people facing serious illnesses. Supportive care is an extra layer of support to patients and families when they really need it. HMSA's program is for persons with cancer, congestive heart failure, and COPD. So those specific diagnoses? Correct. Do they have to be enrolled in hospice already? No. This program is may be considered a bridge to hospice, or it could be considered a palliative care, moving hospice upstream, getting persons earlier and when they are sick or facing life-threatening illnesses. So rather than waiting until, I think the average amount of time someone is in hospice is generally about, what is it, two weeks or so nationwide. It's not very long. because And that's average. That's people who have enrolled six months and people who have enrolled, you know, two or three days in advance. And so we're not meeting the needs of the individuals who really could benefit from the most from these services. So what you're saying is there's a new model of how we could do something a little differently. And that might really help to reach some of those folks that don't know about some of the things that can be done for them. So what I'm going to do is keep everyone in suspense. My next question, Dr. Rita Bell, is going to be, what are those services? But before we do that, we are going to take a quick break. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here on The Body Show, and we have a panel of experts today. We're going to explain a new concept of supportive care in just a minute. So stay with us, and we'll be right back in just about a minute. 
What's on the EPA agenda for Hawaii? Next time on The Conversation, Regional Administrator Jared Blumenfeld joins us with his list. And if Honolulu's bike lanes, or lack of them, are on your list, you may want to show up to a community meeting this week. We'll get a preview, and we'll check in with Neil Conan and see what's taking his attention. That's tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. As a poet, teacher, and heart transplant recipient, Dean Young realizes that mankind's greatest achievements are the intangible ones. I think that the highest accomplishment of human consciousness is the imagination, and the highest accomplishment of the imagination is empathy. Dean Young discusses life and near death and reads from his poetry on the next New Letters on the Air. Tuesday evening at 6.30, following Marketplace. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Nohea Gallery and Kaiser Permanente. You're listening to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and we are here today talking about... Hospice, palliative care, and supportive care. My guests today are Amy Kama. She is a nurse practitioner at Islands Hospice. We also have Dr. Daniel Fishberg, and he is the medical director for the Pain and Palliative Care Department of Queens Medical Center. And Dr. Rita Bell Fernandez, she's the medical director at Bristol Hospice and helping to to really bring supportive care to the forefront so that we can all understand what it is and also who might benefit the most from it. Now, right before the break, we talked a little bit about the definition of supportive care. And there was a really interesting presentation that took place last year. And it kind of highlighted what was going on with supportive care and why is that something that is a benefit to individuals who are facing serious illnesses. And Dr. Rita Bell, you're back in the hot seat. Why would supportive care be a good idea? What role is it filling that we haven't already filled with hospice or palliative care? Supportive care is filling a big puka. It's a big puka. Well, I didn't even know there was one. So tell me, what's the puka? Because this is all news to me. Uh, For example, cancer patients who have recently come out of the hospital and go home, here they get a team to help with medicine reconciliation. They get somebody 24-7 available to take their call or a nurse to come to the home even on a weekend to triage and help manage their symptoms. They have nurses available to accompany them to their physician visits. They get the medical directors from the hospices, perform home visits on them. The chaplains as well are involved. So let's just stop there because a couple of things you said were really exciting. So first of all, in supportive care, you get 24-hour access to speak to a nurse who knows about your situation or who has access to some of your medical information, and they can come see you in your home. Correct. Even on a weekend. Correct. And okay. you have access to the doctor on oh, well, call. That was my next. That, you, you took it away. Okay. Sorry. So in addition to having the nurse come to your home, you could also have a physician come to your home, whether it be the medical director or the doctor who happens to be on call that weekend or during the week, who also can come to the home to see you if you're in the supportive care program. If the need requires, yes. Sure. If the nurse says, I've evaluated Mr. So-and-so, and I think you need to come see him, then the doctor would even come to the home. Sure. It's like the old days of when doctors used to go to people's houses, and it we don't do that anymore, at least not in a regular office practice, but you're bringing that back. Yes. For the people who really need it. Correct. 
Okay. So so nurses nurse line twenty four seven, nurses to the home, potentially doctors to the home. So this was a big puka, this was a big problem. We weren't really necessarily having people go to the home if somebody was having a serious problem with, with hospice or often they do nurse practitioners could go, but there's a slight difference. So now you're talking about leaving the hospital, having access to someone who can help you design the right way to take your medication, figure out what medicine and treatment you need, and also have someone come with you to your appointments because you still can see your own doctors. Correct. And it's the simple things. And I'd like to read to you a paragraph from a letter a patient wrote to us. And this got to do with hospitalizations and medications. So this lady said, after my being discharged from my last hospitalization, I was literally shaking because I was worried I would forget one of my new medications. In addition to the numerous medications I now have to take every day or that I'd take something at the wrong time. Hospice personnel helped me. First, they physically kept me company. Then my hospice, or she meant the supportive care nurse, taught me a practical way to solve my problem. She found the pill reminder tool on my cell phone. Being technologically challenged, I would have never found this tool because for me, a phone is only a phone, not so smart. The phone will chime when it's time to take medication, and it will tell me even what medication it is. Oh, my gosh, a miracle. Wow. I don't even know where the Pill Reminder app is. Maybe you have to download the app. So here's somebody who literally left the hospital, like who doesn't, completely confused by all the new medicines they need to take and very worried that if they don't take them correctly, they could wind up sick again or having a problem. So their supportive care nurse, just something as simple as ding, it's time for your amlodipine, ding, it's time for your whatever medicine you're on. And that actually really changed the life of this individual, enough that she took the time to write a letter. Correct. So when would supportive care be initiated? How, If somebody says, my auntie's in the hospital right now, could she get supportive care? What is that process? How does that happen? A lot of the referrals are initiated at the hospital through the case managers, discharge planners, We also get referrals from the community, from oncologists, cardiologists, primary care physicians as well. So are you in a clinic or are you in the hospital or is it related to hospice services but not hospice at supportive care? Can you be in one without the other? And I think I just asked you five questions. I'm going to let you answer them and feel free to just one at a time. Uh, You, uh, supportive care is different from hospice care. It is not hospice care, so they are not electing their hospice benefit. Okay, so this is different. It's different You do not have to be in hospice. You can get supportive care, and and it's a totally separate program. Correct. All right. And one of the beauties about the program is clarifying the goals of care, advanced care planning, care coordination, and a, a big heavy lifting is done by the social workers. And I'm so impressed with the social workers. They have managed to help patients' dreams come true. People are going to Vegas. People are reuniting with their families on the big island, things that would have never happened if the team had not come together to make their last wishes a reality. Fantastic. Well, I'll tell you a funny story about advanced care planning. And anybody who listens to the show regularly or knows how to access the podcast. So my dad came to visit in July. 
And, you know, he knew I had this radio show and he also has zero advanced care planning done. So I had him come on air. He sat where you're sitting and I had him do advanced directives on air live. The poor man did not know what he was getting into. He just showed up and I said, we're going to talk about advanced care directives. And he's like, really? Right now? I'm like, yes, we are. We're on in 30 seconds. And I made him do it live. And it was very interesting because really the issue with advanced care planning and advanced directives is that... You know, if you know what you want, should time should time be something that is an issue for you, regardless, no matter how old you are, but generally everybody should kind of have a little thought about it. If you know that you want interventions done towards end of life or you don't want interventions done, state your wishes. And he actually surprised me, you know, because I assumed, given our family experiences with people who have not done so well, that he, he would not have wanted to be kept alive if he had a major medical problem affecting his body. And that is not what he said. And everybody can listen to him say it, should you choose to. Check out the podcast. Um, but, you know, he basically said if his brain was working, no matter what condition his body was in, he wanted to be kept alive. So if his brain was working but his legs didn't work or he couldn't walk, that didn't matter. His brain was working. He wanted to be kept alive, which was good to actually have the discussion because I, as a physician, would not have thought that for him. And yet... Thank God I'm not his healthcare proxy. <laughs> My younger brother is. He's in the hot seat. But, you know, because I might not have made the choice that he wanted. So advanced care planning, I really think, is critical. And you mentioned that that's done often with social work, but that should be done by anybody who has a thought about it with their primary care doctor, with whoever their family members are. Let them know what your choices are. Let them know how you define what you consider to be as living your life. What are your goals? What are the things you want to accomplish? Because if you don't and you have an emergency, other people are going to guess and they might guess wrong. I would have guessed wrong for my own dad. So advanced care planning, a huge thing. Do you think we do enough of it? Or are we still trying to catch up with with folks who haven't even thought about it yet? We are still trying to catch up. But the good news is because of meaningful use, advanced care planning is coming to the forefront and clinics, hospitals, everyone is mandated to at least ask patients and families about advanced care planning. Well, I've got exciting news that you probably, you guys probably already know because this is your area of expertise. But as of Jan 1, Medicare pays for advanced care planning. I know it for a fact. You're all shaking your heads like, duh. Yes, Kozak's the last one to come to this conclusion, but as of January 1, Medicare covers for advanced care planning. So you can go to see your doctor just to discuss advanced care planning. Before, it used to be talk about it while you're talking about your diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and it often didn't lend enough time to really discuss the importance of advanced care planning, and now Medicare covers it solely as the only reason you see your doctor it is covered. There is no reason if you have questions or concerns or you're hesitant or you're scared that you can't talk with your doctor or your primary care provider, can be a social worker, can be a nurse practitioner, that you can't set up your own advanced directives. And if you have some that are like 10 years old, review them and look at them again because it may not accurately reflect what you want anymore. Dr. Daniel. Well, I really appreciate your you know, talking a little bit about advanced directives. I just... I want to be clear because we were talking about supportive care, palliative care, hospice, advanced care planning. We think that's for everybody. Everybody. You know, turn 18, start doing some advanced care planning. You know, the, the three 
cases, you know, legal cases we've had in this country that sort of set precedent related to advanced care planning were all healthy young people who had no That's medical really problems good point. when tragedy befell them. Um, so an advanced care plan is important for everybody. It's not just, we've been talking for a while now about what kind of services are available for people with serious illness. We really want to emphasize everybody should be doing some advanced care planning. Right. Know what you want. And, and, Accidents and, happen. And, and just like you did with your dad, get a sense of, you know, what, what his values would be. And also, just like you did with your dad, who's the spokesperson. Yeah, know? I nominated my younger brother. Just said, ha ha, you have to do it. Um, but in addition, we have it on record. We actually have it on recording in his own voice. Now, not everybody has to go to that extent. And my poor dad coming for a visit, he's just on air and he has to make all these decisions. But the important thing was that it was a conversation that he got to direct. He got to choose what he wanted. It wasn't necessarily what I would have expected, but we also know who is his healthcare proxy and they know what to do. What better way than to review? Because, you know, he's my dad. He recorded himself. He played himself for a lot of people so they could all hear him, which was a little embarrassing, but that's the way parents are. And so it's actually recorded in his own voice. And I think you hit upon just there actually where the overlap between advanced care planning and, and supportive care, palliative care is. It's about, you know, keeping the patient and the family at, at the center and in control. Um, that's very clearly what advanced care planning is. Um, but that's also a lot of what supportive care, palliative care is about, um, giving people the quality of life so they can, you know, do the things they want when they're living with a yeah. serious illness. I love the fact that you had some patients who got to go to Vegas because maybe they thought they couldn't, and yet when everything was in place, if that was their wish to go to Vegas and, and gamble one more time and hit the big millions or Powerball or whatever it is, obviously I'm not a gambler, you can tell, that they got a chance to achieve their goal. Now, what is the difference, if there is a difference, between supportive care and concurrent care, or are those synonyms? Concurrent care is offered by a different insurance provider, University Health Alliance, UHA. Okay. And their plan provides the best care for their members during their time of need. Uh, somebody with serious illness can have all the benefits of comfort care and still receive life-prolonging treatments. I love the word and because and signifies abundance. And in UHA program, it is for all their diagnoses. It could be any advanced life-threatening illnesses from uh, concurrent uh, cancer, congestive heart failure, COPD, kidney failure, Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's disease, ALS, or other conditions. So essentially, concurrent care is the UHA version of supportive care, which might be the HMSA version. Correct. And there same are some little differences. Slight differences, but same idea. Name something different, insurance, branding, whatever the reason may be. But the ultimate goal is to give people an option. Correct. To give them services that they need. Is it also a team-based approach? We hear from hospice that it's a team. It's social worker. It's doctor. It's nurse practitioner. It's, you know, oncologist or whoever else is on the team. We hear about palliative care. It's also a team. Is supportive care also a team approach? Yes. Uh, concurrent care and supportive care are both team approaches. UHA uh, as well contracted with all the hospices on all the islands to provide concurrent care. So who, what's the, I got, now, now, ignore, excuse my ignorance. What's the difference between palliative care and supportive care? They sound pretty similar. 
you know, I'd say they are. I mean, supportive care is is a way of delivering community-based palliative care here in Hawaii. Uh, okay. So, actually, I mean, supportive care w- with a little s is often used synonymously with palliative care. But here we're talking specifically supportive care as a HMSA uh, uh, benefit, um, similar to the concurrent care from UHA. Those are both ways that these two uh, payers have developed uh, to, to provide community-based palliative, palliative care. care. So we are talking very similar things. And in fact, it's just a mechanism to deliver it. Yes. So with supportive care, people can go to your home if necessary. You can get a social worker to go to your home, the nurse practitioner, even the medical director, should there be a need. You can have these people come to the individual where they are at to help address their needs and figure out what services they might need now, whether it be medication, whether it be some other type of treatment, whether it be reminders on their phone with an app, which is really cool. I love that idea. I'm going to try and find the app. And if I find it, I'll post it on the Body Show's Facebook page to see if there is an app. Because what a great idea. I mean, you know, alarms ring all the time. Nice that they would tell you what you're supposed to do when it dings. That would be great. Yes, I'd like to add that both these programs provide spiritual care through the chaplains as part of the team, also durable medical equipment related to the supportive care or concurrent care diagnosis is provided. So families don't have to wait a month for their wheelchair or a month for their bed or their oxygen tank. Everything is delivered the same day they get signed up. So with the durable medical equipment, because a lot of folks, they're like, I think grandma could use a hospital bed. I'd really like to get one. Let me talk to the doctor. And I, the doctor, write a prescription and say, contact your medical supply company. They will help provide this for you. And so then they often have to wait a little while. The bed has to be delivered. It has to be arranged. There's all these steps that have to take place that kind of delay things. Because by the time somebody says grandma needs it, grandma probably needed it last week. But we just decided this week. So in order to expedite it, this is you guys have some magic yes magic dust that you do to make sure things happen quicker yes all hospices have a contracted vendor for their durable medical equipment and supplies and it happens it happens the same day all right let's talk about the spiritual care um what if you're buddhist that is fine. All religions are All religions. So you could have a chaplain, a Buddhist. You could have, I don't know if they call them chaplains, but you could also have, you know, Jewish, Christian, any denomination, you name it. They will provide some sort of mechanism for which you can have spiritual counseling. Doesn't even matter what particular faith you follow. Yes, and our chaplains go above and beyond. They go and and do requests that families have, whether it is to bless the home, bless the car, uh, perform the funeral services. They have really done a fabulous job. Fantastic. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio, hearing all about different options for people as they are in end-of-life care, and even prior to getting to end-of-life if they just have serious medical illnesses. My guests today include Anna Kama. She is a nurse practitioner with Islands Hospice, Dr. Rita Bell Fernandez, medical director at Bristol Hospice, and Dr. Daniel Fishberg, medical director for pain and palliative care at Queens Medical Center in Honolulu. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about what are some of the services and what does this help someone to do if you are at a terminal stage Is this a situation where you get to stay in your home? Can this help to keep you from being in a hospital if that's where you choose not to be? And do we have the data to back that up? We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. 
Tomorrow night, it's an NPR News special. Live coverage of President Obama's final State of the Union address. I'm Audie Cornish. Join me as we hear reaction from Congress, the official Republican response, and in-depth analysis with NPR reporters from the campaign trail in Iowa to the halls of Capitol Hill. It's special coverage of President Obama's last State of the Union address from NPR News. Tomorrow afternoon from 4 to 6 on HPR 1. Make way for the Queen of Swing. That's jazz pianist Lenore Raphael in concert in the Atherton studio on January 16th. Accompanied by guitarist Doug McDonald, Raphael returns with her swinging arrangements of jazz standards for one night only, Saturday the 16th. Reserve your seats at hprtickets.org or by calling 955-8821 during business hours. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership, Wealth Management. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Straub Clinic and Hospital and Gourmet Events Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with my guests, Amy Kama. She is a nurse practitioner at Islands Hospice, Dr. Rita Bell Fernandez, medical director at Bristol Hospice, and Dr. Daniel Fishberg, medical director for the Pain and Palliative Care Department at Queens Medical Center in Honolulu. And today we are talking about the difference and the general theme of care for people with serious illnesses. What is hospice? What is palliative care? What is this new program, supportive care or concurrent care? And who might be able to take advantage of these services? Because truthfully, one of the things that I think would be everyone's worst nightmare, and maybe they're not their worst nightmare, but I'll just throw it out there and say, if you ever were in a situation where you had a serious illness and you needed help and yet you were alone and you didn't have anyone to help you and you didn't know who you could ask and you didn't have food or you were in serious pain and you didn't know what to do next. Or if one of your loved ones was in this situation, there is a way that we can avoid having people pass away in severe pain and or feel as though there's no one there to help them during this process. That shouldn't happen anymore. We have plans and programs available that insurance covers. And as human beings, none of us would want that to happen to ourselves or to our loved ones. So what we're talking about today is really important because if you have a loved one who has a serious illness, these are the sorts of things that you want to know. So when the time comes, you realize that there are some options out there for not just the patient, but for the whole entire family, because everyone here has echoed the importance of involving the entire family and friends and supportive unit for that individual so that they can receive whatever it is that they need during this very difficult time in their lives. So before the break, we were talking about supportive care, and there are some criteria and some time limits to supportive care. And if someone is in supportive care, what is the next step? What is the next Is this a transition? You mentioned it's sort of bridging a gap between someone who's really healthy, doing extremely well, and someone who's not so healthy and maybe has a terminal illness. There's this in-between that we weren't really addressing those needs as well as we could. And palliative care has come into hospitals, and the community way to reach people is through this supportive care, concurrent care. Dr. Rita Bell Fernandez, you know a bit about this. You're from Bristol Hospice, and you've worked with the different insurance plans. There are some time limits to this. What are those time limits, and what happens next? 
HMSA program supportive care is for 90 days in a 12-month period. Their members are eligible for 90 days within the 12-month period, and they could use all 90 days. They could use some of the 90 days and save or bank the remaining days. But often we get members who are so sick and ill, they might pass away. Some may transition to usual medical care, and some patients may transition to hospice care. So it could be that they get better. It could be that they get worse. It could be that they pass away. So you have a couple of different options. With supportive care, there is a time limit per 12-month calendar year. How about with concurrent care? That's UHA's model. Do they have a time limit? No, there is no time limit under the concurrent care model. And these are services that are brought to the home. Yes, their services brought to the home. So their members can get uh, life-prolonging treatments, medical, surgical, uh, whether it's chemotherapy, radiation, blood transfusion, hemodialysis. And at the same time, they can get comfort care through the contracted hospice providers. So essentially, it's like taking Dr. Daniel's palliative care program in the hospital and bringing it to the home for someone who's not yet enrolled in hospice, which is the expected six months or less of life. But it's bringing him to your house, but not really him. Although he's very nice. He might go there, but I'm thinking You'd like to clone him. You'd like to clone him. We're not at that point yet. Okay. And, And Kathy, that's really very much in effect what ends up being the result because, you know, I've I've actually had patients with both of my colleagues here um, who, you know, were spending an awful lot of time in the hospital. Um, You know, I I spend my career in the hospital. I like working in the hospital. Most of our patients, it's the last place they want to be. Yeah, hospitals feel like home to us, but for everybody else, they're like, oh, no. For the folks that... uh, you know, have been able to use either the supportive care or the concurrent care, um, they spend very little time in the hospital. In fact, we've had so many people that once they started using supportive care, concurrent care, really all their intense needs that were previously had to be provided only in the hospital could be actually provided in the home. And people were much more satisfied with that, obviously. So you actually refer people to the supportive care and concurrent care program. You see them in the hospital and say they need some help at home and you get Rita Bell and her folks involved. Yep. Awesome. All right. We've got a caller on the line. We have Malachi from Kahala. Malachi, welcome to The Body Show. Oh, uh, thank you. This is a great topic. Uh, uh, More and more people need to find out about this. I had a friend who had cancer, and uh, oncologists never really referred, even though it was obvious to everyone uh, things weren't working, et cetera. But in any case, my question is about supportive care client, patient, who wants to, um, you know, hasten death, uh, what do you have to offer them? Okay, so tell me, Malachi, are you, are you asking, like, if somebody who is in hospice or supportive care has decided that they want to end their life? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Or, or, you know, I, I assume uh, physician-assisted suicide isn't uh, available, although some people say it's legal under the Medical Practice Act. Well, Malachi, I know a whole bunch about this, and I know about this 
because of several reasons. So I'm going to take this one because currently, um, although some people think that it is legal, uh, you know, the previous attorney general has adamantly stated that currently, based on the law, if he found out that any physician, myself included, were providing any sort of terminal treatment or giving someone medication that they would administer themselves to end their lives, that would still not be legal in the state of Hawaii. Now, personally, my personal belief is that at some point, as there have been movements in Oregon and most recently in California, where unfortunately, the well, fortunately, the opposition to the movement was not successful. And if somebody chooses to end their own life with something called physician-assisted suicide, that is considered legal in California with certain restrictions and or provisions that have to be made. In Oregon, they have done this for almost 15 or 16 years already. Montana has a provision for this. I think Vermont does as well. Um, Washington State has also just recently passed that. So kind of the whole West Coast and then, you know, one state in the East Coast. But the real issue with this is that we as a society have not yet legalized physician-assisted suicide, whether you call it that or euthanasia or any of the above. My personal belief as a physician is that we should give that choice to patients. However, it is currently not legal, and none of the hospice organizations are allowed to provide those services because it is not authorized in the state of Hawaii. Um, it may be. There there are some moves in the legislature to consider this. There are some groups in Hawaii that are trying to work towards it. But as we stand right now, January 11th, 2016, it is not legal for any organization to or any doctor to provide someone with with medication that they are fully aware would be used to end their life. Um, it's a great idea. And honestly, as a physician, I'm for it. I just, well, I think this week, tomorrow or Wednesday, I have an article coming out in Civil Beat that you can refer to that will describe my thoughts on it and some of the legislative efforts going on in Hawaii about that. Um, but for the sake of our guests today, they all looked at me and I said, I'll take this one. I'll take this one, Malachi, because I don't think it's legal yet. Um, but I do appreciate you bringing up the question because it is a question and it is something that as a society we are going to address at some point, but it hasn't yet been finalized here in the islands. So that would be my answer to you, Malachi. And please feel free to comment on the article coming out either tomorrow or on Wednesday on Civil Beat because I've, I've written my thoughts on it and some of the legislative efforts that are taking place. So thanks for calling and bringing it up. And it was a great question. And at this point, there are no options in Hawaii, but maybe there will be at some point. Now, we do have another caller on the line. We have a Dr. Lum from Hospice on Maui. Dr. Long, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you so much, and I'm so happy to hear you talking about these really important issues. Hello to Daniel, Rita Bell, and Amy, um, colleagues in our close community in the state of Hawaii. I just wanted to bring up one really important point, I think, for patients and families who are looking at hospice care or supportive care, and that's that they have choice of which program they go with if there are more than one hospice provider in the community. And so while we all operate under very similar guidelines, there may be differences that are important to different people for different reasons, such as whether a hospice program is community-based and led by community board of directors versus a larger um, entities on the mainland, or if there are um, differences in the amount of training that staff have or emphasis about what kind of services can be provided and so I just think it's really important that people make informed choices about which hospice program they choose. 
lots of people still think hospice is like the post office and it's just sort of all one thing. But hospices come in different shapes and sizes. And I think it's really important that people make informed decisions about the program that fits their needs the best. Well, and that's a really good point because, you know, first off, one of the things that was news to me, I'm an Oahu-based physician, but I had a patient recently who needed to enroll in hospice on the Big Island, and I didn't even know if it was available there in my own ignorance, and then I found out it is. So the good news is that we actually have hospice service providers on pretty much every island, except for, I think, I can't say yes or no for Molokai, and I'm getting people shaking their head yes, so I'm wrong once again, which is so nice to be on live air and wrong. Um, but I appreciate that, Dr. Long. And one of the things is, I'm curious because, um, Dr. Fishberg, you also serve in the board of directors of Kakua Mau. And that's sort of the the general umbrella organization that helps to provide information about all of the different hospice providers. So if you have a question and want to know what's the difference between A versus B versus C, they have some great tools on their website to help folks. Tell me tell me more about that, or am I am I wrong again? No, no, Kathy, you're right. I could it's, be. That's, I'm, um, I'm okay and, with and that. And I want to thank uh, Dr. Nancy Long from Hospice Maui calling in. She's a good colleague of ours. And she's right that, you know, depending on the community you're in, there may be more choices uh, for, uh, you know, some of our, our, our island communities may have a single hospice provider, and some have multiple ones. Kukuamau is our statewide hospice and palliative care organization. It's a not-for-profit. It's it's about uh, sort of promoting access to all of this kind of care for everybody uh, living in Hawaii. Um, and it is a it does have a very informative website, kukuamau.org, um, where you can learn about different different uh, providers. Some of the advanced care planning that we were talking about earlier, there's a lot of material there. Um, lots of uh, informational material about palliative care, about different kinds of treatment options and choices. So that if you are going to do a little research and try and figure out, you can talk to representatives of the various hospice organizations if you're lucky enough to live in a community where there's more than one. And not everybody is. And some of our neighbor islands may have limited choices. But again, still the idea that people are looking and saying, I have I have the option to consider hospice. And, and you know, honestly, from the doctor's perspective, if you're a patient and you think you want to consider it, bring it up. Because there is nothing that is more helpful as a physician than a patient who comes in to say to me, I want to know, do I qualify for hospice or supportive care or palliative care or whatever it is? Because sometimes that discussion is difficult to have. And I've had a lot of folks who have said, I'm still seeing my oncologist, but I really want to know, is there some other help that I can get? And they might ask me, and if they bring that topic up, it's like it's an easy open door that I feel free to walk through because as a primary care provider, I may not want to walk on the toes or step on the toes of my oncology colleagues. But if you're the patient, be your advocate. If you're a family member, be the advocate of your loved one because if somebody brings it up, that opens the door for the physicians to know that they can bring it up as well and not be upsetting someone or making them nervous or worried that the whole goal of every oncologist I've ever worked with and of every primary care provider that I work with in my in my uh, medical center 
It's to make sure that we provide what the most important needs are for the patient. It's not about me. It's not about the oncologist. It's not about anyone but the patient and their loved ones and family. That's really where the emphasis is. And Dr. Rita Bell Fernandez, you sort of were smiling when Dr. Long was calling saying, I understand what she's saying, and we want people to get information and knowledge about some of these programs so that they can make informed choices. That's right. They can make informed choices, and the beauty about these programs is it will ultimately improve the quality of life of our patients and family members. And I have to say that some of my patients are actually hospice volunteers, and they amaze me because there is a role for anybody who wants to be involved in in any of these programs as a volunteer. There's something you, too, can do to help the individuals and their families who are going through this. And, Amy, you're shaking your head like, yes, we take volunteers. They're very special people, and they they really provide an extra level of support and care. And a lot of them are people whose family members went through hospice before. They have a variety of experiences, and the volunteers are just another layer of support. With They're like angels, hospice. They really I think. Are. They get <laughs> angel wings. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give them angel wings <laughs> myself. Now, for those folks who are interested in, let's just take the last couple of minutes. If they're interested, we'll start with you, Amy, because we started the show with you. If they're interested in hospice, what should they do? If they're interested in hospice, all they need to do is, they, for more information, they can contact any of their local hospices. Um, as you had say, said, patients and family members can be advocates um, and reach out to their physicians and ask those difficult questions, where they are in their prognosis, um, how well they're doing, and if hospice is appropriate for them. Okay. And Dr. Fishberg, if someone is interested in palliative care, presumably they might be in a hospital setting, but maybe in the clinic, how would they reach into that service? What, what should they do? Should they tell their doctor? Should the doctor describe it themselves? What would be the best way to, to reach those services? Well, certainly, Kathy, uh, talking to your doctor is always a great place to start about you know wh- what you view your needs might be. Uh, the, we, and your doctor might not be the one taking care of you in the hospital. We do have a hospitalist program. Right. So a lot of times the person who's your doctor in the hospital might not be the one in the clinic, but everybody's sort of talking to one another, communicating. So you can talk to your hospitalist doctor, say, I want to have the palliative care team see me, help me, and see if I have sure. any in a hospital-based setting. With. Perfect. Okay. Uh, on the web, uh, getpalliativecare.org is a oh, national that's website. Of, that's kind of a nice, getpalliativecare.org. And locally, we already mentioned kukuamau. Okay. Excellent. And uh, Dr. Fernandez, if somebody's interested in either HMSA's supportive care program or UHA's concurrent care program, how do they? what do they do? Do they tell their doctor? Do they look it up online? Do they call the insurance? Or all of the above? And we liked the end. They can do any of the above. Uh, A good place to start is to speak with your primary care physician because they are the conductor of the orchestra. They know you best. They know you the longest. Uh, The other places you could start is to call any of the local hospice companies for more information. They have community liaisons who can come over to your house, meet you at Zippy's or Starbucks or anywhere you wish, and just do a brief education and explain the different choices and programs that are out there. All right. So at this point, nobody can say, unless they didn't hear us today, that they don't know how to reach these services. And if you really don't know, talk with your primary care provider, because 
if if patients ask me a question and I don't know, I'll say, give me a minute and I'll go Google it or I'll go look it up or something. And that's really helpful. So I want to thank all of you for sharing your expertise with us today. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can find our podcast, whypublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathy Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show. Mm-hmm.